Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. First of all, uh, Happy New Year to you all. Uh, let's hope 2021, although has started with, uh, with uh, lots and lots of virus uh, numbers, continue to increase in pretty much everywhere in the world. But uh, hopefully the vaccines uh, are coming and uh, we'll be able to uh, hopefully see each other um, in person in the, uh, the not too distant future. But certainly at the moment, lockdowns are, are aplenty and, um, and, and hopefully you uh, are all uh, safe distancing and, um, and, and making sure you're wearing your mask as you go out. So, um, so this is the, uh, the first of the year of 2021. Um, and uh, we thought we'd start with the, um, our Insight podcast. Uh, so the last couple of quarters, we've been um, using our uh, quarterly uh, insight a quarterly market review uh, with the team to go through this and hopefully bring this uh, document to life or certainly be a lot more interactive than it normally would be on the call and the podcast uh, today we have uh, Daniel Murray uh, Stefan Gerlach Joaquin Tall and Paul Templeton uh, welcome gentlemen just to um, uh, start with uh, insight document it's actually called opening up or not and there's a a nice lock and key and chain on the front, and certainly at the moment we all feel like we're we're, we're chained to our to our homes and and uh, you know, uh, certainly not allowed out at any point. So it so certainly does feel uh, um, very relevant as we uh, as we move forward in 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 January. Uh, so we'll we'll go to um, page two of the document. It is the uh, is the overview. Uh, obviously, Daniel and I are uh, fresh off the video on the uh, Outlook 2021 video. Uh, so, um, Daniel, I guess the first kind of key point is around uh, the synchronized rebound. Uh, and maybe you can take us through that. Yeah, thanks, Moe. So, um, overall, you know, we think that 2021 is going to be a year of continued recovery. So, many economies contracted very sharply in the second quarter of and third quarter of last year. And uh, following which we've seen economic momentum builds in quite a sharp rebound in many countries. And we expect that momentum to continue into 2021. But as um, uh, you know, somebody once said, it's not just the destination that counts, it's also the journey. And we think that the, the, the path of growth in that context in the first half of the year in particular is going to be pretty uncertain. And of course, that path in turn is going to relate very much to the rate with which vaccines are rolled out and the success of those vaccines, and also in, in parallel, um, the um, spread of COVID. And of course, that spread of COVID will depend partly on the rate at which um, it mutates and um, how dangerous and easy to spread are uh, any of the variants that uh, that come about. So um, overall, you know, pretty good year 2021 for growth, but uh, a bit more uncertainty in the first half of the year. 
um, as uh, the vaccines continue to be rolled out and countries still seem to be vulnerable to uh, to the coronavirus. So I think, you know, somebody else once said it's, uh, it's always darkest just before dawn. I think that certainly seems to be the case here. People are fed up at being locked down and facing restrictions in their lives. They're desperate to get back to normal. We have a high degree of confidence that once uh, large swathes of the population have been vaccinated, that there will be um, a, a surge in growth, but we just don't know when that will be. And it will, of course, vary from country to country. In terms of um, um, the sort of government debt um, and uh, borrowing costs, which is you know, some, something that we, we tackle as well in, uh, uh, in the over, overview section, um, um, what are you kind of th- what are your thoughts around uh, around debt? Um, I think um, you know we've uh, in the past we've said that we've kind of said embrace the debt, um, and um, I, I guess we continue to think that. Yeah, I think you know famously uh, Reinhard Rogoff uh, released a paper I think before the global financial crisis that suggested that um, once government debt to GDP surpasses about 90% and it starts to be more of a problem. But I think events of the past 10 or 12 years have shown that that just isn't the case. And what seems to be much more important is uh, the ability to finance that debt, so debt service costs. And of course, government debt service costs are being kept low by very low government bond yields. And those government bond yields are being kept low in part by the fact that um, central banks are expanding their balance sheets and have expanded their balance sheets by so much over the past few years. So I think despite the fact that we've seen a a massive uh, surge in government deficits last year, and I think that's highly appropriate given the uh, hugely challenging and difficult situations that most countries were facing, um, it's not at the moment um, a problem for most countries. Now, something else that you you and I have discussed, Mose, is the fact that um, growth is hugely important for determining uh, debt and uh, the ability of a country to pay back. So um, what countries need to be careful of is avoiding uh, pulling back on the amount they stimulate the economy at the cost of growth, because that actually would be ultimately detrimental to the debt situation. So it's important that companies maintain sufficient stimulus to keep growth um, growth rates up and to give economies a sufficient chance to recover um, because actually over the medium term that's the best thing governments can do to bring debt under control. Good growth of course it it means that governments spend less on things like unemployment benefit and it means that tax revenues go up so really important that governments keep an eye on that and they're not pressured into a fiscal contraction too early. I think that's one of the I guess the lessons over the uh, post the global financial crisis I think obviously with hindsight, I think uh, particularly fiscal policy probably tightened too quickly. Um, you know, post post GFC, they probably needed to keep on spending for a good you know, three or four years or five years after the global financial crisis to uh, to kind of got out, you know, to get out the funk. And unfortunately, they probably tightened too quickly, and uh, and um, and then led to those um, you know those economies kind of dropping off and. Uh, and we've been stuck in, uh, you know, deflationary forces ever since. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we, we put this quote in our Outlook document this year that from Milton Friedman, who said there's nothing so permanent as a temporary um, government policy. And I think that that's certainly the case here. It's 
you know, governments have rightly responded to the crisis by looking to support their economies and looking to um, create as little disruption socially as possible and trying to ensure that people uh, are able to feed and clothe and house, house themselves. And that's you know, completely appropriate. Um, but of course, once you put these policies in place, they are, you know, it's very difficult to withdraw them, or at least to withdraw them in a way that doesn't um, have a really uh, deleterious impact on on the economy. So I think on this occasion, it looks like governments are being um, a bit more careful. And uh, of course, the fact that uh, central banks are working uh, not exactly in concert with governments, but they're, you know, there's a lot greater communication with uh, with central banks and perhaps during some previous recessions. I think um, that tells you that actually uh, the debt is affordable for, for longer. So hopefully that will mean that um, the stimulus isn't pulled too quickly. So um, in the um, sort of second half of the overview document, we have um, a, a section on pandemics and paradigm shifts, which we'll, we'll return to a bit later. But there's a, a nice little uh, quote around... Uh, uh, um, Sir Isaac Newton around uh, 1665, where he uh, walked for three days to go home from Trinity College, uh, Cambridge, to avoid the, clay, the plague, self-isolating there for 20 months. And uh, he developed uh, calculus, the laws of motion, and uh, a lot we, we, we didn't know at the time, know about optics. So uh, very, very interesting analogy uh, relative to the previous uh, pandemics. And I guess the um, this time around it is electrification, green technology, and uh, you know digitalization of all forms during this pandemic. So uh, you know there are some um, um, some big benefits of of, uh, of pandemics, and probably one for EFG is the podcast, <laughs> which I, I do wonder whether we guy whether we would have actually had a, a podcast if it wasn't for the pandemic, or at least had the time to do it. <laughs> So um, I, I think that's interesting. We'll return to that thought process um, a, a bit later on. Uh, finally, we talk um, a little bit about the dollar and, um, and uh, you know, we continue to see, um, uh, you know, the dollar being like marginally over, uh, overvalued now. Certainly there's, there was a, a decent move on, uh, on currencies or certainly against the dollar in uh, 2020. Um, and um, you know we continue to see this, uh, I'll say, moderate dollar weakness rather than anything that is uh, more aggressive. Clearly, one thing we have seen is that whenever there has been a, a big slowdown in economic growth or where fear is uh, around, the dollar does uh, tend to strengthen. Uh, and so uh, maybe in a more kind of optimistic world uh, that allows the dollar to depreciate uh, a little bit more. Um, we. Then kind of move on to uh, page four of the document, which is uh, the asset market performance. Uh, so just very quickly, uh, MSA World in dollar terms was up uh, 16.5%. This is uh, gross. Uh, so um, uh, so in the end, if someone said to me at the beginning of the year, you would expect equities to be up 16%, I would have thought, yeah, I'd be very happy with that return. Uh, but obviously we had... Um, a huge amount of volatility um, to, to to get that return, uh, but still, it's it's very competent. I think you know generally, I would say that uh, most people are very surprised at how strong equities uh, ended. Uh, but we also saw uh, you know fixed income markets. Uh, you know uh, uh, the Barclays Global Ag was up um, around nine percent. 
um, and um, uh, you know some some sort of strong returns across across the board, e- even in high yield. So um, you know, overall for for a balanced uh, portfolio, it uh, turned out to be a uh, very reasonable year. And um, so uh, you know, I, I think the key thing or key message was to stay the course uh, through through uh, through the course of um, 2020 and uh, believed in the monetary and fiscal policy responses to uh, to to get us out to to get out get us uh, at least have a fighting chance of getting out of um, uh, the COVID slump. Uh, so we move on to page five. And um, we move on to the United States, and uh, I'm going to ask uh, Stefan to, um, to 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 come in. Obviously, the latest stimulus package um, was 900 billion dollars. Um, just uh, another huge amount of money, and I suspect there's going to be more before this uh, this stimulus ends. Um, um, uh, obviously, the momentum. Kind of continue or has did continue until the end of the year in the United States, but uh, Stefan started to come off a little bit as um, the COVID numbers started to pick up in December and and, and the early part of January. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, we have plotted there the U.S. non-farm uh, payroll employment, and that I think uh, sort of tells uh, an interesting story. One in which we had essentially, if you'd like, just a collapse in in spring with a surge in uh, in unemployment and a collapse in 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 employment. Uh, employment fell by something more than 22 million jobs, and then a gradual uh, uh, increase. First, quite a, a rapid increase in in may and june and early summer but that uh, that increase has been uh, has been slowing down and i think perhaps one reason for that is the is the fact that the epidemic really sort of set off again in the uh, in the fourth quarter but it's also i think simply the fact that uh, so inherently some uh, parts of the economy responds very quickly in either directions and in, in other parts of the economy the sort of the pickup the recovery is just inherently uh, inherently much uh, much slower so so it has been a uh, an extraordinary year i think for the u.s economy and uh, we are st- have still some distance to go as i think that graph shows very nicely until we back to to where we started from in terms of the gdp growth path as we look forward to 2021 uh, what's the you know what's the view in terms of uh, you know economic growth um, you know q1 q2 maybe a little bit uh, soggy is probably the right english word for it but uh, as we um as we move forward, as Daniel alluded to earlier, um, uh, a strengthening. Um, just, to, I guess, my, my question around that thought process, do we think today that consensus is too pessimistic about this year? Uh, or, um, or, or do you think, uh, you know, consensus is about right so my sense is that overall the consensus uh, is right in the sense that many people anticipate that 2021 will be a year of, of, of recovery and we do so too um, 
but the first six months uh, don't uh, don't look so good. I think uh, I think to us there's a lot of uncertainty still. When the first good news came uh, about the vaccine uh, in in December, uh, we sat down and we we did a number of back of the envelope calculations to see how quickly might you actually be able to vaccinate a, a large part of uh, of the population in a number of countries and. Uh, uh, by and large, these these calculations said that it would take probably at least four months or six months more likely before you would make a serious dent in this uh, in the uh, in the vaccination problem, if you like. Uh, and that suggests that the first six months, or that suggested to us that the first six months we wouldn't really see much of uh, an impact of the vaccine. But towards the third and, and fourth quarter, we would see large numbers of the population being vaccinated, uh, and consequently, given that the uh, vaccinations would first be of people that are elderly and have underlying health conditions, we would probably see a decline in mortality uh, in the in the first, and particularly in the second quarter. And then from summer onwards, we, we would see a strong recovery. But I mean, this is all uh, conditional on on the vaccination process panning out sort of in, in, in that way. It could well happen that uh, vaccines become available a little bit faster than that is currently anticipated, for instance, because there are more manufacturers that can bring theirs to the market. Uh, it could also be that because of, of logistics problem, etc., uh, the whole process of vaccinating people people in some countries end up being, being more slow, uh, going more slowly. Um, so there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty in the first two uh uh, in the first two quarters, uh, uh, but overall it's, it, we know now that by the fall it seems almost unavoidable that uh, large numbers of the populations will be uh, vaccinated and an economic recovery will then will then come. So that seems uh, that seems pretty clear, but the path from here to there just remains very, very uncertain. Well, certainly financial markets have voted with their feet <laughs> by already anticipating that improvement uh, for the second half. And, uh, um, you know, certainly with uh, markets that already started quite well in, in 2021, um, so that uh, path, certainly for the, from the financial markets, you know, could lead to to potentially some disappointment uh, if it's not as quickly as they hoped. Uh, but certainly something that uh, that is worth watching, um, you know, very very carefully. Um, I wanted to sort of also sort of touch base on the, uh, and we have a nice chart here on on table on chart number twelve. But the a very nice um, uh, segue into um, into the Federal Reserve. And in terms of policy and uh, potentially, I guess, some changes in, in policy um, thinking, at least, rather than response uh, going forward, uh, particularly around sort of work, some of the work that you've done around thinking around, uh, you know, minorities and so on and so forth. Yes, I mean, uh, we have been talking a lot about this, uh, as you as you know, in the, internally, and there are some major changes among central banks. And of course, a very big thing to be, uh, that one needs to sort of keep in mind here is that uh, it looks like now very likely that Janet Yellen will be the next uh, Treasury Secretary. And of course, that means that it will be very similar thinking, both on the part of the US government and, and the Federal Reserve. And that, of course, Will be, will be helpful. The Fed has said a number of, uh, of things. I mean, they have adopted what they call 
average inflation targeting. And essentially, that's just a, a, a long-winded way of saying because inflation has been so far below our target for a number of years, we're going to aim to keep inflation a little bit above target for a while so that on average inflation is at target and that uh, will then impact on, on inflation and uh, expectations. So that is plainly the objective. And I think that's the reason why um, when you when you hear FOMC, uh, FOMC members speak or when you see, for instance, the famous dot plots from the FOMC meetings, there is no anticipation. No one anticipates that there would be any move, movements towards tightening U.S. monetary policy or raising interest rates for the next for the next couple of uh, for the next couple of years. It looks very much like the Fed is going to try to support economic recovery as much as as much as they can. Of course, economic recovery here is largely a fiscal is fiscal uh, a fiscal uh, issue. I think the the other issue um, is that the um, the Fed uh, has increasingly come around to the view that uh, it makes sense for them to run the economy a little hot, as they say, to uh, to let the unemployment rate really fall. In the past, the, the Fed, like other central banks, tended to tighten monetary policy just when they started to worry about inflation might be increasing. And that, in practical terms, meant that they started to raise interest rates as the unemployment rate declined to sort of what they felt was a, a sustainable uh, level. Um, and they did so, they tightened policy before inflation actually in practice started uh, started to rise. Now they come to realize that the relationship between economic activity and inflation has shifted a lot in recent decades. And they can actually safely let the unemployment rate fall to much lower levels than they previously thought was possible without having inflation picking up. The great benefit uh, 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 from that is that economically disadvantaged groups in society, and particularly, for instance, the black community in the U.S. and so on and so forth, uh, they have a typically higher unemployment rates in the steady state. And if you run the unemployment rate, uh, or if you run the economy a little, uh, a little hot, um, these groups tend to uh, find jobs, and, uh, and that has a huge impact, particularly on economic uh, on measures on economic. Uh, inequality that then falls, the, the, the most effective thing central banks uh, can do to reduce economic inequality is simply make sure that people are employed uh, by running an expansion policy. So I think this will come uh, now. We will see this this time. And uh, this is another reason why we should anticipate that the Fed will really hold off for the longest possible, as long as possible before they start tightening monetary policy. They're not going to tighten monetary policy just because there's a risk that inflation might rise. They will only tighten monetary policy once inflation really starts to rise. And not just start to rise, but starts to exceed 2% in a sort of persistent uh, uh, way, then we will see some uh, then we will see some action. So there has been, a, I think, a, a, a sea change, I think, in the, Fed's, uh, in the Fed's thinking about the economy. And we will see some of that also in other countries. Um, so there have been big, big changes, and the thrust of those changes, essentially, we will have more expansionary monetary policy for longer than we than we thought previously was uh, was possible. Excellent. I think uh, it's going to be very interesting to watch, uh, something we haven't seen for 
for some for a long time actually. Uh, so let's move on to the um, to uh, page six of the document to the UK, and um, there's a, a nice little chart, chart fourteen, which is um, documenting the UK cost of um, COVID compared. Um, maybe Daniel, this is quite frightening uh, bubble chart, but uh, maybe you could take us through it. Yeah, so really massive costs here. We've uh, uh, got various different dots on the chart, which just show the scale of and the impact of uh, what we went through last year. So Concorde, which was uh, the joint project with uh, the French to develop a supersonic commercial aircraft, that cost um, about um, uh, £8 billion sterling in today's money. The Channel Tunnel, also a huge multi-year project, and uh, with our, our French partners, that was, uh, at the time, what was considered a whopping $18 billion. HS2, which is the high-speed uh, train link between um, London and Manchester, that uh, multi-year project in excess of $100 billion, which um, uh, you know also seems like a vast amount of money, uh, but that's also dwarfed by the bank bailout during the global financial crisis of 2009 uh, and 2007. And um, that was nearly double that, so at 180 billion. And uh, the COVID-19 crisis of last year, that uh, you know, the scale of that bailout dwarfs even um, the GFC bailout. And in fact, it's, it's around about the same size as uh, the, the joint amount spent on the bank bailout and HS2. So it's 284 billion pounds sterling, so a massive amount, and um, and still counting on that as the government continues to um, extend measures and to provide support to the economy. So a really massive amount. But um, I think you know, in the UK, as with other parts of the world, um, the fat governments have been able to issue so much debt to support uh, their economies and to support their spending plans. Very much facilitated by. Um, uh, central banks that have uh, hopefully expanded their balance sheets. So thankfully that has prevented um, a blowout in yields. And uh, as we say in the report at the moment, markets seem reasonably relaxed about this big increase in debt. I guess the the real uh, concern and worry is those three projects, Elisa, will all come in the last you know, 10 or 12 years, which is, which is a huge amount of big projects to have spent all, all, all in a relatively short space of time. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I, I think there's, uh, you know, a few points to bear in mind. So the first relates to, to uh, this point about having low yields and, and uh, debt service costs. And of course, um, there is an argument to be made. Um, and, you know, Martin Wolf from the FT is someone who's espoused this on various occasions, that when uh, yields are so low, then governments should be spending a lot. And I think related to that is the fact that um, um, a lot of this spending, perhaps less so with uh, the COVID-19 crisis, but, uh, you know, spending, for example, such on something like HS2 is an investment for the future. So what you would hope is that um, that investment facilitates stronger growth in the future that ultimately leads to lower debt levels. So you know, you, the government has to spend now in order to benefit from it later. So um, it, is, it is, of course, a vast amount of money, but very necessary um, in the context of the unprecedented crisis we experienced last year. And um, what you would hope is that at least partly some of the money spent over the uh, uh, this crisis facilitates better growth in the future. 
Uh, so let's move on to the Eurozone uh, on page seven. Um, I guess the first um, um, chart there is actually quite interesting, just in terms of how diverse the COVID experience has been in uh, in uh, in Europe. Um, uh, Stefan, you know, winners and losers. Yeah, I mean, we can if you look at this uh, at this graph, uh, which I which I think is very instructive, and we do see, as you say, an extraordinary. Uh, divergence among countries where Belgium regrettably has had the number highest numbers of deaths per million population and Finland and Estonia and Cyprus are on the other having something like about 10-12% of what what Belgium has had. So yeah, it is an extraordinary situation and it has of course, not surprisingly, also impact on economic activity. When the epidemic is really rampant, you have two effects you do need to introduce uh, restrictions to slow it down, and that you know, closing stores, theaters, restaurants, bars, uh, of course, has a direct impact on on economic activity. But there's also an indirect effect, and that's uh, voluntary social distancing. Frankly, when the epidemic is is rampant. People just don't feel comfortable going out to restaurants or going shopping and so on. So they stay home, even though they are legally allowed to go shopping or go out for dinner. Uh, they stay home, and that, of course, has a very big uh, has also a very big impact on economic activity. So the relationship, I think, is very clear here. Um, the epidemic uh, has reduced economic activity uh, in, through both of these mechanisms, and uh, you know, doing well means. Uh, uh, the countries that done best actually uh, has had the fewest uh, the fewest number of, of deaths per um, um, you know as a, as a fraction of the of the population. So uh, um, it, it's very clear here managing the epidemic has been key to maintaining economic activity. In the document, we talk a little bit about um, uh, debt levels and then and, and inflation. Um, um, any thoughts around the kind of ECB again? Uh, what I find quite interesting, we have an ESG theme going through through uh, through the globe at the moment. Uh, what about uh, ESG within the ECB? Um, so I, I think I mean a lot of what we've seen, a lot of the commentary coming out of the ECB about uh, about <laughs> about bonds and debt levels and and inflation and so on and so forth is actually very much Madame Lagarde uh, pushing the agenda she was pushing when she was managing director of the IMF, the whole issue of greening of the economy and green bonds uh, and, and so on. She obviously feels that that is a uh, that that is a uh, a key issue. There is very little concern coming out from the ECB about high levels of public debt, and I, th- I think the, what what's going on there is really that the ECB knows full well that if something. Uh, if another uh, public debt crisis would come, then they would behave very much in the same way as they did uh, in 2010, 12, 10, 11, 12, 13. That is, they would start buying government uh, government bonds. I mean, a public debt crisis is generally deflationary. So you can then, as a central bank, go out and buy government bonds and, and uh, uh, with the idea of sort of pushing up inflation that happens to, at the same time, facilitate uh, the, uh, the financing of the government. But that's, uh, that can be seen as a side effect. But of course, it's a very, it's a very fortunate side effect, in, if you like. Um, 
So I think that this is the uh, this is really remarkable. The ECB does, has said on, on a number of occasions that they are worried about uh, low inflation, uh, and again, that's another reason for Google going out there to buy government bonds, and that of course further alleviate the, uh, the problems uh, uh, associated with large uh, with large fiscal deficits. So, uh, in, in many ways, I think uh, the uh, the ECB has been a little bit unusual in that so much of the public commentary has been about greening the economy and uh, and so on and so forth uh, and the other matters low inflation large public debt continued purchases of government debt which from a financial markets perspective have been more relevant has not really been uh, at all discussed or focused on so much uh, by the ecb in its public communications maybe maybe it's a diversion tactic <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think to some extent it, it, it is, in fact. Uh, we have also discussed this in, in the past, as you will remember. In many ways, Madame Lagarde is an unusual ECB president because her background is not in central banking. Her background is not in financial markets. She was uh, uh, Minister of Finance in France, uh, and it's very clear that the issues that she has been pushing are not the standard central banking issues. Uh, and I guess that to some extent reflects her professional background and her expertise. And uh, But it does make the reading of ECB communications now a little bit... Uh, a little bit unusual. Uh, I mean, frankly, the ECB does not seem to sort of capture necessarily all the concerns that are being expressed by financial markets commentators. Mm. Yeah, very, very interesting. So um, uh, a little little bit of hop into Switzerland uh, on page eight. And uh, I guess the, the, the big talk uh, is, um, is Switzerland being labelled as a currency manipulator uh, alongside Vietnam. So what's your... What's your what's your take? Uh, you know, and uh, and and I guess we you know we, we we try to sort of provide the mitigating factors in the document. Yes, I mean if you go and uh, and read what the treasury, the U.S. Treasury are saying, I mean they are by law required to look for currency manipulators, and they have three criteria, namely whether a country has a bilateral trade surplus with the U.S. of more than twenty billion dollars, whether the country has a, a current account surplus of more than 2% of GDP, and whether there has been persistent uh, currency interventions by the central banks amounting to more than 2% of GDP in the previous uh, uh, six months or 12 months. And of course, by all these criteria, the uh, Switzerland is now, uh, well, Switzerland satisfies all, all these three um, uh, criteria. But if you read what the US Treasury writes, uh, they are well aware of, they say that if the Swiss franc is not undervalued, um, you very much have the, uh, get the sense reading this report that uh, these criteria are not intended to catch um, Switzerland or are not intended to catch uh, uh, Vietnam. These are really criteria adopted to deal with other countries, I think, in fact, in particular China. But since Switzerland and since Vietnam satisfy these criteria, of course, the U.S. Treasury cannot not uh, classify them as currency manipulators. But you have, you sort of have the sense that um, Switzerland and Vietnam are sort of collateral damage 
if you like. Uh, it's very clear from the report that the, that the US Treasury understands full well what's going on here, understands full well that the that SMB is not trying to to undervalue the francs, but, it, but rather is trying to avoid a very damaging surge in the value uh, of the Swiss francs. They're trying to prevent an excessive appreciation of the Swiss franc and not trying to for, uh, to force a depreciation of the franc in order to improve Switzerland's trade performance. So, so I think this is not something uh, um, one really should worry about, certainly not now under the new US administration, but even under the Trump administration, it, it was very clear, reading the document carefully, it was very clear that this is not intended uh, to do to, to force a change in Swiss economic policy. Absolutely, I think um, SMB generally has been quite successful on its investments. <laughs> yes, the SMB has has, uh, has done very well. As you know, they have almost one trillion now in foreign assets. Uh, I think uh, I think they hold something like two hundred billion in in equities. Of course, they've done well there, and they uh, the rest I think are held mainly in. Euro area and US dollar bonds. I think mainly Euro area bonds, but uh, no, no. But they have uh, um, their investment performance has been has been uh, impressive. I think the big issue though in Switzerland right now, and we don't really know how this will play play out, is the growing political pressure on the SNB to pay out more um, of the, of um, of its. Um, Profits, uh, as you know, the SMB pays out to the federal government in Switzerland and, and to the cantons, two thirds of the cantons, and uh, uh, one third to the government. And I think this year they will probably pay out something like four billion, which is if you uh, if you have twenty billion in profits and if you have assets of something like a trillion, it's not very much. I think this will be the big, the big issue. I think uh, the SMB will be facing in the, over the coming year. Very interesting, but I would say that if you're Swiss, it's a nice problem to have <laughs> compared to other countries. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, so let's move on to uh, page nine, and we 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 now sort of delve into Asia. Um, obviously, a huge amount uh, going on, uh, uh, Paul. Uh, obviously, also some some currency manipulation. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we put together this first chart, chart 23, and uh, it's on the dollar renminbi exchange rate and some of the key things that have been said about it. And the, the one thing that struck me was that when Donald Trump first came to office, uh, he said the uh, the dollar was too strong and it's killing us. And the implication was that other currencies needed to appreciate. But the renminbi against the dollar basically finished uh, Trump's, or will finish Trump's term of office fairly close to sort of where it was when, when they started. So I suppose one thing I take from that is if you look at the chart of the renminbi against the dollar, its movements seem to have much less to do with what the US says and much more to do with what China wants to happen uh, to the exchange rate. And that's no surprise in the sense that this is still a very, very controlled capital account that China has. So I suppose in that context, you know, what we've seen sort of recently, the renminbi appreciation is actually a little bit odd. It's sort of coming at all the wrong sort of times, coming sort of 
too late for Trump, and it's coming when the world's in sort of crisis, yet the renminbi's rather strong. I, I think what it points out to me is that this thing is actually very, very difficult uh, to understand on the basis of you know, the straightforward economic factors that might influence currencies. The, the other sort of key development is uh, this chart uh, on, on uh, chart number 25, which is uh, was just very very interesting uh, around uh, semi semiconductor imports and uh, the title of that paragraph is more chips and oil. Um, may, maybe you want to take us through that. I hope you'd like that. Uh, more chips and oil. I mean, it's from a podcast by Neil Ferguson. So to give him his due, I mean, he was the one that sort of first brought it to our attention, <clears throat> British economic historian. Uh, so if you look at China's imports, and I must say that's not an easy task. Uh, the data, well, leave much to be desired and there are some inconsistencies, but I'm pretty sure the chart we've got here is right. So the two largest categories of China's imports are integrated circuits, chips, and other electronic bits and pieces. And third category is oil. So it's more chips than oil. It, biggest imports by far are electronic components. Now, of course, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that because they're all needed uh, to uh, produce their exports. If we were to take something like the uh, iPhone, for example, we all know that it says on it, uh, designed in California and made in China, but the made in China bit doesn't tell you all of the story uh, because China gets the chips for the iPhone, well, from Taiwan and Korea. Um, and those chips are designed by a firm in Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Uh, and the lithography used to produce the chips is made by a very, very specialist company based in Veldhoven in the Netherlands, uh, a town of 45,000 people, which apparently now has a waiting list of four. It has a full order book for five years to provide the lithography used in the manufacture and design of chips around the world. So, you know, when we talk about sort of trade wars and barriers and tariffs and so on, gosh, it might work in some areas, but in the things that are so important in our lives now, mobile phones and mobile devices and electronic equipment, this is a very, very complex supply chain. Mm, no, absolutely, it certainly comes through. Maybe something's a little bit more easier is tourism in in, uh, in Asia. So um, uh, we, we have a nice little sort of uh, discussion around tourism in, uh, you know, um, you know um, uh, I guess Philippines, Vietnam, um, Thailand and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, Thailand is the one that really struck me. I mean, you can get Thailand tourist arrivals. I looked at the data. We haven't got a chart on it in here, but I looked at the data. The tourist arrivals go to zero in April of last year, and they stay at zero for six months. And tourism is a third of the Thai economy. I mean, this is a just a terrible, terrible impact. But Thailand is one of the least affected sort of economies from COVID-19, relatively no number of deaths and so on. So for me, this is a really fascinating 
sort of example, you know, fascinating countries to look at. How quickly does that come back? I think we've got two months now when, when a few tourists did actually arrive. Um, but, you know, we talked at, right at the start about a, a synchronized, sp- speedy recovery. I mean, this is exactly in the economy where that could happen. But, you know, Stefan's point is so important. People have got to have the confidence to, well, go to their local restaurants and then even more confidence to get on a plane and go to Thailand on holiday. And I just wonder how long that does take take to to come back. I mean, I, I, I'm always influenced by what Greta Thunberg says, and she did this interview for her 18th birthday, and I keep thinking about it. She said, I didn't need to get on a plane and go to Thailand to make myself happy. <laughs> and I think, well... Let's just hope the entire world doesn't think that because the future of the Thai tourism industry won't look too bright. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm I, I'm sure uh, you know it's probably one of the destinations a lot of people will go to. I'm absolutely so sure about that. Um, the 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 I guess the other sort of interesting aside to that is 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 concerts and uh, you know we had the um, um, James Pomeroy. Uh, HSBC on our podcast and he talked about uh, New Zealand rugby and uh, and how the sort of stadium suddenly became packed. I do wonder about that, uh, thinking a little bit more um, uh, about it and you kind of wonder whether maybe the young will go to a stadium but maybe you know, anyone over the age of you know, I don't know 40 or 50 will probably not, uh, not, not go immediately. I think they'll be a lot slower to come back than... Uh, than, than the young will be so I, I think that's uh that, that's something quite interesting and, and i you know also been thinking that um you know who will want to go to a dirty cinema anymore <laughs> you know just uh you know uh, cinemas are you know I, I guess they're always dark and you never know what you're sitting on <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 but you do wonder you do wonder you do wonder whether you know, people are ever going to go back to cinemas, um, you know, uh, you know, go- going forward, you know, given the, the need for it. Uh, my, my, my trick um, uh, for, uh, for, for getting cinemas open is actually switch the lights on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I, I, yeah. I, 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 I think, the, I, I think that, you know, the, certainly the, the, the cinema situation is, is one that I do, I do worry that it's not going to be coming back, uh, you know, anytime soon. Well, I think also as a historic, there's a, some historic work being done, I think, I believe it's by MIT, you know, a, a lockdown might damage your growth to start with, but in terms of the rebound, a successful lockdown is really, really valuable. Mm. So that's why Eden, Eden Park in uh, Auckland, the example that James Pomeroy used, mm. is actually very interesting because the successful lockdown in New Zealand and the limited number of infections confidence can quickly bounce back right right but whereas we are after our third lockdown you're quite right the cinemas are just not appealing yeah no i think that's a very good point actually is that um you know given that how successful they were people are going to go back a lot quicker whereas as you said you know when you once you're down to the third lockdown you're not going to go back very quickly and i i i do wonder about the long-term impacts on uh, on um, on you know, gyms and uh, and uh, and cinemas um, because you know, generally pre-COVID uh, they they didn't have a good record of of cleanliness and uh, uh, and, and and being 
you know, uh, places. So I guess you know, they really need to advertise aggressively to make sure that they they uh, they, they they do provide those virtues. Um, so let's move on to um, Latin America. Obviously, it's their summer. Uh, most people in uh, Latin America at the moment are probably uh, lying on a beach somewhere. Um, oh, Joaquin, you were on a beach just not long ago um, from uh, in, in Uruguay. Uh, so what's the development of the COVID cases uh, and the response in the region? Yes. Uh, so... Uh, definitely it's, it's their summer at the moment and the problem is that they've seen what happened in the summer in the northern hemisphere and what happened with covid cases uh, then and so uh, countries are being very worried of, uh, of the, um, uh, the contagion rates uh, across different countries and we've seen the example of, of countries that had pre previously seen maybe a better uh, have seen a, um, a better record let's say in terms of managing the spread of the virus uh, catching up with some of the of the big spreaders like Brazil, like Mexico, uh, and then you saw smaller countries such as Uruguay, Paraguay, um, that were were behind in terms of number of cases, seeing a, a sharp increase there in their in their daily cases and and also in the number of deaths. Um, however, uh, some of the measures that they they, they took uh, were very similar to the ones that were implemented in Europe, like closing the borders and not letting tourists move across different countries, only allowing nationals to, to, to come into the country and imposing strict um, quarantine and track and trace measures for, for everyone that got, um, that got a positive uh, death. And um, um, in, in, the, in the document, we, we talk about um, uh, kind of three reasons for uh, America's uh, weakness. Uh, do, do you want to just go through those? Because I think the the points in terms of the makeup of the of uh, workers, for example, is is quite critical. Yeah, exactly. So then, then in the document we highlight the the three reasons that we think that uh, are responsible for the weakness in in LATAM. Um, uh, one of the first ones you mentioned is uh, the large proportion of workers which are employed in industries that are dependent on contact or on, on like dealing with with people such as um agriculture such as mining uh, and such as uh, tourism as well which becomes very important for for some countries and uh, the around 45 percent of, of, of workers in in the region are um, employed in these sectors and this is pretty high compared to, to a world average of around 30 percent the other reason as well is that um latin america was starting from a very low base of GDP growth in, in previous years uh, in, in comparison to other parts of the world. Uh, there were some very fundamental weaknesses that were in place just before the, the, the start of the pandemic with low levels of per capita income, high levels of debt, uh, very high levels of informality in some um, uh, labor markets and unemployment rates that were, were still pretty high in comparison to, to the developed world uh, made it also that we were starting from, from very weak uh, fundamental um, uh, conditions. And also the, the, the third one maybe is the fact that healthcare systems have been overwhelmed by, by, the, by the pandemic when the number of, of uh, hospitalizations and people that have to go into ICU units in, in many cases. And this shows the lack of um, investment in some of these areas, sometimes uh, forgotten in terms of uh, ahead of uh, other areas which uh, governments sometimes prefer to uh, to invest first. Uh, so therefore, the, the actual response to, to this pandemic, uh, although it's been grand in terms of some tax cuts and some expenditure increases, it hasn't been of the same magnitude 
actually observed in, in the developed world. So we also cover the response and the recovery uh, within within LATAM, and we talk about uh, the platinum quality policies in Chile, Colombia, Mexico, and uh, Peru. Um, um, I guess the real risk here is that obviously the outcome is a lot worse um, in terms of um, you know economic hit. And um, and that risks, if you like, uh, a credit crunch. You know, maybe not immediately, but certainly in a in a year or two's time. Um, what what is your thinking around that at the moment? Yeah, the the, the response, as you said, was uh, was considerable um, in terms of facilitated by, by low inflation rates across parts of the region. Uh, central banks were able to to cut interest rates to historical lows. Uh, and as you mentioned about some of the, the, the ones that have better economic fundamentals that were pre-approved by the IMF to withdraw from these flexible credit lines, Colombia has been the first one that started drawing from this in December, and they're expecting to, to do it again. Uh, however, in, in terms of the future for, for the region, I think it's, uh, it, it also applies that, um, that phrase that Daniel was mentioning earlier about how permanent some of these temporary measures are. Because it will be difficult for some Latin governments now to eliminate some of that uh, emergency spending that resulted from, from COVID-19. Uh, with the debt levels under pressure, the governments will have to now resort to, to tax hikes because they probably cannot uh, keep re- reducing interest rates. We've seen inflation starting to pick up a little bit more in Brazil driven by higher food prices, very limited fiscal space. Um, as well to, to continue increasing spending. And we're going to start seeing problems maybe with, um, uh, with debt sustainability issues because uh, some, some places like um, uh, Chile and, um, and Peru already announced uh, they were going to delay some of their tax um, hikes until after they have some elections uh, now in April. Uh, and then Colombia and Argentina already announced that they're going to start increasing taxes to help the fiscal consolidation. So overall, I think uh, the first uh, first three months of the year, first three or four months of the year, um, we're going to see continuation of some of these measures, given that the vaccination is still in a very early stage there. And um, they're still going through the, the, the second wave of, of contagion rates. Uh, however, later in the year, we're going to have to see maybe um, some countries revert to interest rate hikes uh, or uh, as well some, some tax hikes to be able to cope with uh, some of these emergency spending. Absolutely. So we will certainly watch very carefully. Certainly is, uh, is still, I, I think, the um, the headline for 2020 from, from uh, that, that I vividly remember is actually the headline in one of your articles which you wrote winter is coming um and uh, winter will be coming again in latin america very quickly uh, in the over the next sort of you know three to four months time uh, so we'll uh, we'll certainly watch to see how that uh, how that pans out maybe uh, um i'm gonna have to review uh, again what will happen once winter comes again yeah exactly yeah yeah second winter um so the last um um article we have on page 11 which is a, an absolutely fascinating discussion around pandemics and inflation and um, and looking at the experiences around the world uh, and the UK specifically of 10 pandemics um, going back all the way to the 13th century, uh, Paul. Um, and the, uh, the inflation outcome is actually, you know, uh, maybe a little bit different to what um, 
the current consensus suggests. Uh, it is on the basis of that long history. I mean, uh, uh, this database has always fascinated me. I mean, the Bank of England put it together. It's, uh, it's a Bank of England's millennial database. It goes back, well, for consumer prices to 1215. Uh, now, of course, you know, there's no statistics office then. So, I mean, this is pieced together from largely agricultural prices. But uh, there's no reason to think it's 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 inaccurate. And the point coming from this, it's one first made by Silva Tenrero, who's on the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, is that the experience is overwhelmingly disinflationary. Uh, from pandemics. I have to be a bit careful about what we call a pandemic. We've got pandemics, we've got plagues, we've got epidemics, we've got the cholera, the Black Death. I mean, we've had 10 big ones. And the overwhelming uh, experience is that inflation falls. And the inflation rate falls uh, typically by around about four percentage points. And it lasts, you know, that takes a process of about four or five years. You don't get back to where you were for around about eight years or so. So it's a very slow burn thing. You know, I, th- I think economists have always wondered, you know, we've got a supply shock, we've got a demand shock, you know, gosh, which is going to win out. I mean, it's a, it's a discussion that... Mary Rosenbaum sort of went through uh, in your uh, knowledge exchange you just had recently. And I was interested because she said, you know, the Fed or the FOMC members overwhelmingly seem to think the pressure is for disinflation. The evidence from this study that we use, you know, from pandemics and so on over a long period of history is overwhelmingly it looks like disinflation, inflation is going to be lower. But that is quite the opposite of what many people are talking about right now, which is we're going to have more inflation as a result of this because of the easy central bank policies. Um, so what, why has it been disinflationary in the past? Well, basically because it's a bigger, uh, it, it, it's, it's a bigger shock to uh, demand than it is to supply. But there are a few interesting sort of points about that. Uh, there's often a shortage of workers without being too grim about it. I mean, the workforce is smaller as a result of these terrible sort of events. And certainly after the Black Death, uh, wages rose very strongly. And real wages have risen very strongly in all of these cases. So real wages go up. So you might say, well, that's rather strange. So we get all of these terrible events. They're disinflationary, but real wages won't rise. So surely that means people are going to go out and party like crazy and uh, you know things are going to go back to normal quite quickly, you know, the type of recovery we've talked about. Well, historically, that hasn't happened. Now, of course, there are big differences, aren't there? I mean, we didn't have a central bank. We didn't have a fiscal authority sort of, you know, propping up the economy. We didn't have vaccines and so on. Um, But it does seem to suggest that there's a great deal of consumer demand-led sort of caution after these things. And one very fascinating uh, angle on that is the sumptuary laws. I don't know if you've ever come across the sumptuary laws, but they were first introduced after the Black Death. And basically, 
There were laws designed to stop you behaving in an extravagant sort of manner. So the first ones started to forbid people from having glass in the windows. Oh, please, don't do that. Don't show off by having glazed windows. And don't have clothes that are too fine and too sort of coloured and so on. Uh, So some of that was enforced by law, but there was a natural reticence on the part of people to go out and be a bit sort of, well, what would we call it now? A bit flash, a bit bling, go to Thailand on holiday. (laughs) You know, um, there was a reticence to do that. So the, the demand deflation aspect wins out sort of in after the pandemic and it finishes up being deflationary um there's a there's a small extension of the uk work uh, to a handful of other countries and it seems to be found pretty much against uh, in other countries sort of the experience is also that you get the the deflation to start with lasting three or four years or so and then the recovery really takes quite a long time. So, yeah, a long history would suggest this is disinflationary or deflationary, not inflationary. It certainly is uh, very much against the consensus thinking uh, at the moment. Uh, certainly, when you look at um, you know Bitcoin prices, which uh, which obviously have have rocketed as a result of fears of uh, of, uh, of of inflation. So, uh, I think um, certainly that. Uh, uh, you know that's certainly a, a very interesting development in but the I uh, think in the very short it, term. It, no, it is. But I the thing that I'm thinking about also in relation to that is, is this not a little bit like what we had after the global financial crisis? Because that was very much a story of asset price inflation, yeah, yeah. and not general inflation. So maybe it's it is the same again. It certainly. Uh, Certainly uh, could be. I think, um, uh, you know, reticence in terms of uh, extravagant spending is something that uh, is, uh, is, is quite interesting and um, indeed is something we'll, we'll watch out for, um, you know, very carefully as we, as we go through, certainly to the second half of, of this year and, and into next year. But certainly the overall evidence, um, you know, overwhelming evidence uh, from this uh, analysis is that we've got uh, three years of disinflation. Very, very interesting. So I, I'm sure we'll have uh, lots of uh, listeners challenging that assumption as we move forward. Uh, so, uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, your inputs uh, uh, today and uh, obviously inputs into the document itself. Um, and um, you know, no doubt we'll get lots of questions you know, coming, um, coming through on it. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Miles. Okay, so uh, we'll wrap up uh, this podcast uh, here. Uh, Thank you very much, everybody, uh, for listening. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week.